Good morning. I'm Leah. If you don't know me, I'm the pastor here at Haven Berkeley. I'm glad you're here. So um, I'm going to start telling you a little story. Um, this comes from about 2005. I think I, it was around then when I had this unique experience. I was working at the time... Uh, various day jobs, while my vocational goals, aspirations, were to become a rock star. Um, I had a band. I was gigging in Chicago, um, married, no kids, um, working nonprofit jobs, coffee shop jobs, etc., to pay the bills while I uh, did the musician thing. I was also very involved in my church. Uh, I served, did a lot of leadership stuff, led small groups, uh, led the worship band, all of that. Um, but if anyone had ever asked me, like, would you consider, like, ministry as a possible vocation, I always said no. Um, my words, I'd kind of come to faith in college as a theater student in a very secular program at a very secular university. And it seemed to me that you either chose kind of religious life, and that was like your main thing, or like non-religious life, you know. And the language that uh, I had become accustomed to was you're either about the world or the church. And for me, if those were the terms, then I was going to say, I feel called to the world. That was the language, not the church. And so, yes, I'm happy to serve the church. I'm happy to, uh, to show up and help. I feel like that's, that's a way I worship Jesus. But, um, but I'm, you know, I'm here to, to do stuff outside of the church as my uh, vocation. And then I got sick, super sick in 2005. Like, started as a cold, then became like bronchitis that's taking me to the ER, then developed into pneumonia. And, you know, that was kind of a rare thing to happen in your 20s. And my doctors basically said, you need to go on six weeks of total bed rest. Um, take lots of antibiotics and just stay in bed for six weeks. So I had to go on disability leave from work, had to cancel all my gigs, cancel all my church commitments. Um, and I spent six weeks in bed. And you do a lot of thinking when you spend six weeks in bed. I read War and Peace. That took me about a week. <laughs> like, when else am I going to read War and Peace? So I read it. It was great. Um, <laughs> but then what? <laughs> so I was thinking, I was reflecting, I was praying a lot. And in this season, I was noticing what I was missing, kind of pulling out of my life. I would have expected, if you had asked me ahead of time, if you have to cancel everything, what are you going to miss? I would have said, oh, my shows, definitely. I love to perform. I'm going to miss the gigging. But strangely enough, when I actually was in that circumstance, that's not what I missed. And it wasn't even my day job where I did feel like I got some sort of like affirmation vocationally um, that I was doing professional work and it was helpful to people. But that wasn't it either. I really found myself missing small group, missing leading worship, missing all of these pieces, praying with people. Um, that is what I was hungry for having to kind of take myself away. And I remember praying and saying, Jesus, why, why is it the ministry stuff I miss? And I just felt like this moment of clarity where this answer just kind of came to my spirit. Like, well, that's what you were made for. And I had this like, uh, I thought I was for the world, not the church. I've been saying that for years. And I felt like God was said, why does it have to be one or the other? In that moment, I recognized I'd been making a false choice. That God wasn't actually wanting to set up this huge boundary between the world and the church, that people are either one or the other, right? I felt this sense of God's invitation. I want people who will take the church into the world, 
right? That they shouldn't be these walls between them. And I had this like, oh, well, I mean, if I could have pink hair and wear leather pants and still be a pastor, like maybe I could do that. It was a moment of clarity. It was a moment that changed my life, right? If I hadn't had that experience of having pneumonia in 2005, I don't think I'd be here doing what we're doing here, living in Berkeley, all of that. I would call that an epiphany, a moment of epiphany. Now, what does epiphany actually mean? Where does that word come from? It actually comes from the Greek, okay? I have the Greek term here. Epiphania is the Greek. So it's a Greek word that comes back from biblical times. And epiphany in Greek actually means manifestation or appearance. And specifically, it was used to talk about an, an appearance of the divine, a moment where you see divinity, where for, for however brief it can be, you see God. That's where the word epiphany comes from. Now, we've developed it over time to mean something else, right? Something more like what I was describing. This is how Merriam-Webster um, will define kind of a more contemporary understanding of epiphany. A usually sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something, or an intuitive grasp of reality through something such as an event, usually simple and striking, an illuminating discovery, realization, or disclosure. But as a person of faith, I find that really intriguing, that whether, whatever you believe about divinity, there's this idea that there's something transcendent that happens in these moments we call epiphanies, right? That in a sense, we see ultimate reality. We get a glimpse of something beyond, and it changes us. And at this time of year, there is a tradition in the church where this term really comes to us from that is celebrated, okay? As the church recognizes the epiphany of the appearance of divinity in Jesus, right? Traditionally, there have been two main stories that the church has reflected on about kind of that a manifestation, that appearance of God's divinity in the person of Jesus. Two stories. Um, and they have whole traditions that the church has developed around recognizing these stories and like, you know, for games and songs that are sung and foods that are eaten and all of this celebration that I think, truthfully, American Protestantism has kind of forgotten about. We've gotten pretty far away from And uh, this time of year, instead, we tend to think about New Year, right? That's often what a lot of us, I think, have been thinking about probably in the last week or so. Making resolutions, setting goals for the year. I think that's valuable, too, right? It's an opportunity to mark time, to be reminded, to take stock. What has happened? What's coming? That's a healthy practice, whether you do it at the new year or some other time. I've been praying about um, in this last couple weeks, kind of what is, what is my sense of like this moment for us, for us as a community, for us as individuals living in the world right now. And the word that's been coming to mind for me is reform. And I don't mean reform. I mean reform. Okay, there's two separate words. But this one is to form again, right? Reform is to change, to adapt. But reform is this sense of building on what has been 
but also recognizing there's a newness to it as well. Does that make sense? It's a little different than reform. I believe we are forming again in a new way, a number of us in different ways, right? We're reforming as a Haven community. Many of the core original founders who were with us a couple years ago have moved on. But God's brought others. And they are now essential part of building what it is we are going to be building going forward. So we're reforming, in a sense, a core team, a community to build from here, right? But I think this is something that's happening more broadly, too. A reforming going on in our senses of identity. Many of us feeling, uh, what does it mean to be a citizen? In the United States right now. I, I think my, I need to reform my understanding of that. What does it mean to be a person of faith in the broader cultural conversation? I think that might need to be reformed in some ways, right? What does it mean for the broader church? I think the broader church is going through a reforming of its own. Are we to be a church that stands with people on the margins Are we to be a church that stands with people in power? I think there's a reforming that's happening for many of us as we think about uh, what's happening. Are are the political parties, are the civic organizations, are all of those pieces that we've come to kind of feel like are fairly entrenched and we, we know what to expect about them. Suddenly things are kind of thrown up in the air. And we're not totally sure, like... Do some things need to reform, to change, to actually, you know, become something different? Do we need new organizations, new structures? But I think the catalyzing event that's going to inform any of these reforming activities have to be epiphanies, right? We need to actually experience some manifestation We need to actually have those moments of divinity, whatever you want to call it, to actually be affected by those, to have something to reform around. Does that make sense? So as we kick off this year where we're going to be considering what does our formation look like, formation as a group and formation as individuals, um, at least I think that's going to be kind of something we're kind of pressing into in the coming months, I thought it would make sense to start the conversation by tapping into this ancient tradition that I, I don't have a lot of history with, this Epiphany celebration. I've never been in a church that celebrated Epiphany, truthfully. Um, but it's exactly where I want to be, I feel like, this year. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing it for the next two weeks because, truthfully, the Western church and the Eastern church, like the Eastern Orthodox, they both have different kinds of Epiphany celebrations where they focus on different Epiphany stories. So we're going to take the West's story this week, and the next week we're going to look at the Eastern Orthodox story, okay? So this week, this is what we're going to begin with, the traditional epiphany story, which is the story of the Magi. Now, you may know, where did I lose my notes here? In much of the Christian world, epiphany wraps up the 12-day celebration of Christmas, right? And so for some, that includes gifts given on every day. Hence, we have the 12 days of Christmas song, right? At least we know about the partridge and the pear tree. Um, other, other traditions celebrate um, at the end of the 12 is, is supposed to be this is when the Magi came. That's kind of the celebration, right? This is when we celebrate the Magi, um, even if we don't really believe it took them 12 days. Um, and so 
then that's the time when some, some children don't get gifts from St. Nicholas. They get gifts from the three kings who come and fill their, uh, their shoes with toys, something like that. So this story that is focused on 12 days, which was yesterday, yesterday is the technical January 6th is the Epiphany Day. So this is Epiphany Weekend. Um, the story that's reflected on is the Matthew account of the life of the birth of Jesus, okay? It's a different story than we get from Luke. Most of us, if our, most of our exposure to these nativity stories comes through like a Christmas pageant or a Christmas Eve service, the stories have been kind of blended together, right? Parts from Luke, parts from Matthew, all kind of, you know, put together into one happy story that goes together. But it's actually not the case, right? These biblical accounts tell two different stories, Luke's is a beautiful story. That's where we get the the angels and the trip to Bethlehem and the baby in the stable and uh, the shepherds coming. It's a beautiful story. It's different than what Matthew tells. Matthew is the one who gives us the story with the Magi. So that's what we're going to take a look at today. And I invite you to try to kind of pull it out from Luke and just let it stand on its own terms. Does that make sense? And we'll take a fresh look at it. And to be looking, as we do, for the moments of epiphany, the moments of manifestation, appearance, revelation, that you find provocative. So let's go to Matthew 2, starting with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the time of King Herod, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was alarmed, and all Jerusalem with him. After assembling all the chief priests and experts in the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for it is written this way by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are in no way least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod privately summoned the wise men and determined from them when the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and look carefully for the child. And when you find him, inform me so that I can go and worship him as well. After listening to the king, they left. And once again, they saw the star when it rose, led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they shouted joyfully, And as they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasure boxes and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back by another route to their own country. So this is a familiar story to many of us. The plot points are basically known. What I want to do today is just take a moment to kind of meditate on the various characters in the story, their various experiences. What did epiphany mean for each of them? Who saw the epiphany? Who missed it? How did it affect them? And what does this story communicate about the bigger story Matthew is beginning by telling it, right? And how might that affect our own experience of what this epiphany means for us and where we might fit in the bigger story? So 
we're going to consider each of these characters uh, one at a time. And the first I want to think about is Herod. I have pictures just to kind of help you in your mental meditation. Um, artistic representations. I do not know what Herod looked like. So, um, but this is potentially somebody like Herod. King Herod. Herod the Great. He was the current political king of the Jews. He reigned on behalf of the Roman Empire, a puppet king on behalf of Rome. And the story starts with him actually receiving this delegation of foreigners, right, to his palace. And it says that he and all of Jerusalem are alarmed. I find that a bit striking. Like, I get, I get why Herod might be alarmed. Why is all of Jerusalem so alarmed? I think to understand that, we maybe need to know a little bit more about who Herod is. Okay? Herod the Great is actually somebody we know a lot about historically. It's In fact, of all the people who lived in this era, we know more about him than, um, than uh, all the other historical figures because Josephus uh, was a, a Jewish scholar who was a historian, and he wrote extensively about Herod the Great. So we have a lot of information about what he did. Um, and so what we know is that he was a ridiculously cruel, violent man, particularly prone to paranoia and violent responses to it in his later years. Um, so some examples of what that looked like. He, uh, he had 10 wives, so he had a lot of children, uh, a lot of sons. He killed four of them uh, because he was afraid that they were threatening his, his own throne. Uh, he killed his favorite amongst the 10 wives, because, again, he felt uh, threatened by her. He killed her mother. Uh, he killed one of his chief priests. He invited him down to, like, a water polo type game. Uh, and then they drowned him in the water uh, when he was playing. Uh, when he was getting ready to die himself, he was aware he was on his deathbed. He was afraid that the people of Israel were going to uh, rejoice at his death. And he did not find that an appropriate response for a king of his magnitude. They should be grieving. And so if they're not going to grieve for him, he thought, I'm going to make them grieve. And so he issued an order that the head of every household in Israel should be brought to the Herodium, the big stadium he had built. And at the moment of his death, and not be told why, but they just need to come. And then at the moment of his death, they would all be executed so that every family in Israel would be grieving when he died. Now, thankfully, his followers did not carry that order out when he died. But that tells you the mental state of this person, right? This guy is not one to be messed with. He's ridiculously brutal. He's ridiculously paranoid. And so you get a sense of if some people are coming and raising the question that there is another king being born here, you know that's not going to go well. So even if you are not Herod, anyone in his vicinity, anyone in his court is going to be aware that this is potential for a lot of disruption. And, and that, could, that could be alarming at, for anyone. Does that make sense? I think that is what the alarm is connected to, is knowing who Herod is. And they're right. They're right to be alarmed, right? That's what the story tells us. Because Matthew goes on to tell us that when Herod realizes that the Magi have pulled one over on him, they don't come back and tell him so that he can worship the, the, the child, right? He gets mad. And we see it in verse 16. 
When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became enraged, and he sent men to kill all the children in Bethlehem and throughout the surrounding region from the age of two and under, according to the time he had learned from the wise men. There have been questions throughout history about did this actually happen, this slaughtering of the innocents, um, because Josephus doesn't record it. But, uh, but we, uh, I think most scholars have landed on the reality of we're probably talking about Bethlehem was a small town, um, about half a dozen babies that would have been two and under. And the reality is Josephus records so many acts of brutality that Herod did. That's when it's probably just a blip on the radar. It's, it's, not, it doesn't, it's not something worth noting. It doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Does that make sense? So that's lovely Herod. Now we have the chief priests and the experts in the law who work with him. So these ones I find particularly interesting because these are the religious leaders who represent the faith, right? That Jesus is sent to be the fulfillment of. They supposedly believe in the prophecies of the Messiah. I mean, that's, they are the ones who've studied them. And according to Matthew, they get it. That they say, they believe, they've interpreted these words from God to say that the the child is going to come from Bethlehem, Right? And yet, when the Magi informed them that they believe that this prophesied one has come, we don't see a response, right? We don't see them celebrate. We don't see them go to check it out for themselves. They don't go to worship. Why? Are they genuinely not interested, actually, in the Messiah? Are they too scared of Herod? to want anything to do with the Christ child, that's, that's plausible. Clearly, they've seen there's a price to pay being in alliance with anyone Herod finds threatening, right? Herod drowned one of their own during water polo. Or perhaps they mistrust the foreigners, right? I mean, they maybe don't possibly believe that some foreign astrologers could actually have a beat on the coming of the Messiah if they haven't heard about it, Right? I mean, surely God would announce the coming directly to them, they must have thought. Not some pagan weirdos from another land to show them God's anointed. That that doesn't make sense. They dismiss it out of hand. Whatever the reason, their inaction ends up meaning that not only do they miss the epiphany, they don't see it. They miss the arrival of the pinnacle moment of everything they are supposed to be about the climax of their story. They also become complicit in this violent tragedy that follows as Herod, in his paranoia, executes all of these babies. Right? They're the ones who show him where to go and execute them. Well, then we have the Magi, trans- translated wise men in our, in our translation. And these folks are the most mysterious. Who were they? Did they look like this, right? Like the people in our little nativity set? What do we know about them? Were there three? Were they kings? The truth is they are the subject of intense speculation for thousands of years. I think we have another picture you can go ahead and put up. We have to acknowledge a lot of holiday tradition has developed apart from the actual biblical account around these folks, okay? So let's talk about it a little bit. First of all, early on in tradition, the tradition began to imagine that there were three because there's three gifts mentioned, 
okay? So by Middle Ages, those various Christians had even named them and created physical descriptions like Baltazar, Gaspar, and Melchior, and they would say some, some, some would say one's from Asia, one's from Africa, one's from Arabia. And while that's a beautiful, inclusive picture, and certainly representative of like where the story is going, that there's going to be people from every tribe and tongue and nation, a part of this thing that Jesus is doing, it doesn't actually reflect what Matthew's talking about, right? He doesn't say anything about that. Matthew never stipulates a number. Contemporary scholars would point out that it would be very rare in those days to make such a huge journey, particularly with like a lot of very expensive things without a large entourage. So likely something more like this is what we're imagining, right? I mean, the Eastern Orthodox Church has always observed that there were 12 magi, not three, which is probably closer to the truth, okay? Because you would not make it all the way to Israel with all of this expensive things they had with only three people. We can also rule them out as being kings. That tradition is rooted in um, the way that some Christians have read back into the story some of the prophecies that came before Jesus. Words like, um, arise, shine, for your light arrives. This is uh, Isaiah 60. The splendor of the Lord shines on you and nations come to your light, kings to your bright light. So they would say, well, oh, in the Old Testament at times, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, there was prophecies that kings would come and worship Jesus, so that must be who the Magi were. Does that make sense? Where that's, it's not, it's not, it's not actually a fair leap. So we can say they're not kings. Uh, Magi in that time wouldn't have been kings. But the term given by Matthew for these visitors, this term magoi in Greek, it's a plural of the singular magus, We translate it in English, magi. This term also is problematic. It doesn't tell us exactly who they are. Okay, some believe it's in reference to a particular group of Zoroastrian priests. You can show the map, I think, we have coming up. Okay, so the Zoroastrian priests served in Persia. Okay, and you see where Jerusalem is. So it's certainly east, and it's close to Babylon. Um, So that Babylonian Babylonia Persia period there was a you know there was a time when lots of Jews lived in exile over there and so there's a thought that there's a connection there and there probably are still Jews that live there and so perhaps these Zoroastrian priests with whom uh, back in the Hebrew Bible days Daniel was a part of that group um, and so there's been some kind of cross-pollinization there that that's perhaps how they know about the Israel story and that's who comes and it's true that Zoroastrian priests did study the stars um, yet, and they were called magi, but by their heyday was really about four or five hundred years before Jesus. And by that time, we can tell from other um, kind of uses of the word magi in other literature, as well as in the Bible, that the term was not used explicitly for them. It was used, I mean, it was used of them, but also for a lot of other people. Does that make sense? So the term itself doesn't tell us it was their, their group. It could be their group. It's a reasonable guess, but we don't know for sure. Another reasonable guess uh, is a group from Sheba. So down there uh, at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula in what is contemporary Yemen. As you can tell, it's very close to Africa. They go right across that little cape and they're they're there in um, parts of Africa where there is uh, gold mining. And so there is a lot of wealth in Sheba from that gold. And it also happens to be the only place in the world where the trees that... um, make up the roots for frankincense and myrrh are grown, is in Sheba. So that's another um, kind of theory, is that that's actually where they came from. 
uh, because that's where they would have brought all of those things from. But we don't really know. Despite the fact that our nativity sets generally show us the magi kind of uh, in a stable with the shepherds, that's also something that wouldn't have been true, right? Whether they came from Persia or Sheba, you can tell it's going to be a long journey, right? And then you think about the months of sorting out. What did they actually see in the sky? Where would they go to find it? Finally embarking on the epic trip, getting all the preparations together. And so by the time they found him, Jesus was likely a year or two old, which is why Herod killed all the babies two and under, right? Because he's a toddler at this point. So what do we know about who these magi are? What actually matters? Well, we know they're some sort of astrologer magicians, okay? They're learned in science and spirituality. So that word does, that is what that denotes. It just happens in in lots of different cultures at that time. But they would be learned in sciences and spirituality that are foreign to the story of God and the Hebrew people, right? And yet their unique journeys lead them to see the appearance of divinity, the epiphany in Jesus. And we know that this capacity to identify Jesus, to be drawn to him, to worship him for who he is, that is really, really unique in this nativity story. I mean, think about it. Every other character in Matthew or in Luke that encounters Jesus at his birth has to be told by some sort of divine messenger what is up, right? Angel comes to Zechariah. Angel comes to Mary and Joseph, leaping baby filled with the Holy Spirit for Elizabeth, right? Like whole choir of angels for the shepherds. They're having like divine interventions to say like, hey, wake up, something big is happening. And yet these magi don't get any of that. But they see something in the sky. They perceive something and somehow they get it on their own. They figure it out. Their own understanding of the stars, perhaps their knowledge of the Hebrew stories of faith, they lead them to see some sort of phenomenon and to go on this epic journey that's super costly and dangerous to see it and be a part of it. And their gifts demonstrate that they understand in a unique way the character and identity of Jesus, perhaps more than anybody else. Gold. You can put this, I think there's a picture of, oh, I have two here that I I wanted to show you. The first of the, I just like this one because why not? I mean, probably they were male, but maybe there were some women amongst them. And then the next one focuses in on the gifts a little more. So we have gold, a sign of royalty. It recognizes Jesus is king. That's what that gift symbolizes. You give gold to a king. Then there's frankincense, a sign of divinity. It's the incense that's burned in religious ceremonies. It's the appropriate thing to burn in worship. Whatever your faith experience, these people recognize that. And then they bring myrrh, a sign of mortality. Myrrh is the spice used for embalming. The gift of it marks an understanding of Jesus' humanity and certainly foreshadows his untimely death. Here, these foreigners from another part of the world Come bearing gold, royalty, frankincense, worship, myrrh, humanity. They see it all. My friend David is a pastor I used to work with in Iowa City, and he posted about this on Facebook yesterday. 
Happy Epiphany. Today, Christians remember how several Middle Eastern magician astrologers discerned the divine presence before anyone else. I think that sums it up. It's amazing. But they're not the last characters we have to consider. There's also the Holy Family. Matthew doesn't tell us anything about how Mary and Joseph respond. But I'd have to imagine that of all the strange encounters they've had in recent years, this must have been the most mind-blowing. I mean, they had visits of angels, shepherds, all of that. But now, uh, a year or two later, this large delegation of foreigners arrives. I mean, I'm sure nobody in small little Bethlehem has ever seen anything like it. A parade of, of foreigners coming in kneels before their little toddler with tales of this long journey they've undertaken for years to find their family and worship the newborn king. And then they bring out treasures that are beyond what anyone in that little village would have ever seen. I imagine they must have been overcome afresh with the wonder of all of it. I mean, they're just going about their routine, trying to feed the baby, trying to change the baby, you know, whatever it is. Play with the toddler, help him learn to walk wherever steps they are. That mundane little life with a small child. And then here, this happens, right? And the gifts are so abundant. They're miraculously also happen to supply this young family with the wealth they're going to need to live as refugees in Egypt. So this epiphany story has these four sets of characters. Herod, the religious elites, the magi, Jesus' family, and they each seem to experience it in a different way, right? Herod's threatened by it. It's bad news, not good news. has to be eliminated. The religious elites miss it. Like they can't perceive what's happening right under their noses. Though this was supposed to be the story they cared most about. The Magi receive it, right? They receive the manifestation. They perceive it first. They see something in the stars, and that perception leads them on this journey to come and see and find out more. And for Mary and Joseph, I think they also receive a deeper revelation. The epiphany has been slowly unfolding for them, first with these angel visits and the pregnancy and the birth surrounded by shepherds and the trip to the temple where people were prophesying over their baby. But here, as these foreigners celebrate their son, I think they understand in a deeper way that this child is not just for them. The community that he calls around himself is not just their little community. This epiphany is about more than the identity of Jesus' divinity. It's about the identity of the community God forms around Jesus. Even from birth, Matthew is showing us Jesus' unique capacity to call diverse community into existence. This is the child who's going to grow up and say, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And many chapters after this story, Matthew will end his account of Jesus' life with Jesus' words to his followers to go and make disciples, make followers of all nations. This capacity of Jesus to call folks from different ethnic backgrounds, different religious practices, different kinds of stories into his greater story is revealed in this epiphany right at the beginning. You see that? For those who have eyes to see it.
Well, in the last year, I feel like we've had a lot of multiple mini epiphanies around what we're doing here at Haven, all of which have happened communally. There was, I think, epiphany around articulating. I think our vision is to be safe, diverse, Jesus-centered, which I find really beautifully reflected in this story. Then we have this epiphany about if we're going to live into that, then we need to shatter some idols that keep us from doing that. But there's one other that I haven't shared on a Sunday, so you may not have heard it. Um, When we were doing a a prayer group that Ginny led last summer, we were praying into our vision of what does it mean to be safe, diverse, Jesus-centered. How do we do that? And I had this picture, uh, and it started with a tree. And initially, I thought, okay, I'm not. We're we're trying to pray about our community, and so this isn't this isn't about that because I God likes to speak to me with pictures of trees, and I think of that as myself. And so I think, okay, that's that's just my thing. And I felt like God was saying, no, Leah, I need you to pay attention here because you're not the only tree. And I felt like in that moment, the like the zoom like widened out, right? And I could see a bigger picture, and it was a whole bunch of trees. It was a grove. And I had this sense of God saying, this is what you are. You're a group of trees. And the grove looked weird. I'll be honest. Like, the trees didn't all look like the same. They didn't look like they belonged together. And some of them were, you know, short, and some of them were kind of off, and some, you know, just different, like, all these different kinds of fruits. And it's kind of like, why are these all trees together? It's not this uniform picture. But there was also something profound in that of like, yeah, there's some, they're still connected to one another. Their roots were intermingled beneath the soil. They were in the same soil together. They were being nourished together. They were becoming an organic unity. And there were places where trees had been ripped out, and there was a hole. And I grieved those of us who have been uprooted from this community who are not here anymore. They have left holes. But there were also places of uh, new life, being, being saplings springing up from the ground. There were places of new trees that were being transplanted in, and the transplanting could be awkward. And there was this, like, they do that, that one is not going to fill this hole. It's not just an easy plug and play. But over time, the roots would mingle, the branches would mingle. And over time, something beautiful, organic, was coming together that would provide shelter and nourishment and a place, I believe, of epiphany and haven. When I think about us reforming, that's the picture I have in mind. God taking us into that next chapter of what it means to be this unique grove that I believe he's ultimately the gardener of. And it comes through epiphany. So as we end, I just want to take a moment to interact with God's presence and consider on this celebration of the Epiphany, how might we each experience the manifestation of God? Okay? So I'm just going to invite you to quiet yourself, and we're just going to take a few minutes, and I'm going to give you a couple questions just to consider with God's presence, okay? And then we'll move into the next thing. Jesus, we invite you to be the one who's ultimately bringing us into experiences of epiphany. May we be people who perceive you and who see the next thing you're doing.
So I invite you to consider these questions. They're a little different than those, so yeah. Where might Christ, where might the anointed, be appearing in unexpected ways today? Just sit in that with the Spirit. See if anything comes to mind for you. And who are those who can perceive it? Who are those that are perceiving God's epiphany? How might their wisdom surprise us? And then I invite you to consider this. Where are we in the story? Are we with those in power who are threatened by the revelation? Are we with those who are too wrapped up in our own expectations or agendas that we miss it? Are we following or part of the contingent who's perceived a new perspective that brings enlightenment and understanding? Are we with the Holy Family, recognizing divinity in our midst, but needing to expand our awareness to receive those coming from surprising places to give us a fuller picture of what God is doing. God, we thank you for those first magi, whoever they ended up being, who could perceive who you were and could testify to the reality that all are included in your story. Would you allow our eyes to be open to the current manifestations of you that we could play roles in being formed into all you need us to be, to perceive it and to embody it. Amen.